Hi guys and welcome to another episode of the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. My name is Tim Cameron Kitchen, Head Ninja at Exposure Ninja and best-selling digital marketing author. In this episode, I'm joined by Robert Glazer, founder of Acceleration Partners. And I wanted to get Robert on to talk about affiliate and performance marketing. Now, I know some of you will already have affiliate programs in place, many won't yet. And also many of you will be aware of the whole influencer marketing trend. So Robert's here to explain how businesses can tap into these sorts of customers and build out an effective performance marketing strategy. So whether you're looking to get your own affiliate or performance marketing program established, or you just want to work with influencers without having to kind of blindly pay out with no hope of return, this episode should be super useful. It does get pretty in-depth in places and is one of the more advanced shows we've done. So get your teeth stuck in and enjoy. So uh, welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks. Happy to be here. So you talk a lot about performance partnerships. Maybe you could just kind of explain for people who are new to the concept what the difference between performance partnership and affiliate marketing is. So that's a great, great question, Tim. And and actually, when I started thinking about writing the books, one of the first things that I tried to do was um, look at this these definitions of affiliate marketing and performance marketing and figure out if they were the same or different. So I asked 20 people in the industry their definitions of affiliate and performance marketing, and they were all different. But a couple of the, <laughs> couple of the themes that emerged were, I think, where affiliate started and the purists believe that affiliate marketing or sort of true performance marketing has a CPA element. That is, you, you, you pay for an outcome. And where, where the umbrella tent has become a little crowded is that anyone who's doing anything like search or paid search or social where after the fact, you can measure cause and effect is also calling that performance marketing. And you have some of the affiliate industry trying to rebrand under that. So it's getting really confusing. What I said is, look, what what do people want? And that's where we came up with performance partnerships. And, you know, performance partnerships are, you know, they, they it includes a lot of affiliate marketing, but I think some other parts of business development partner marketing that are coming into play where you have a CPA payout. I think that's the core or a COD, as I like to say, cash on delivery. You have transparency of everything that's going on with your partners. You have real ongoing relationships with the folks that you're working with, and you have real-time tracking and payment. And, and the nice thing about the performance partnership definition is I think it includes all the parts of affiliate marketing that people like and think are valuable. It excludes all the transaction-based non-transparency stuff, and it opens up to many more types of relationships coming, coming in under that framework. Okay, cool. So it's kind of like an evolution and a taking the best bits out of affiliate marketing and, and branding it as something, I guess, new. So let's say I'm a brand and, and you're a, what we would normally call an affiliate or an influencer. Publisher, um, yeah. All kind of yeah. partner, all kinds of definitions. Partner, cool. So from my perspective, then I'm rewarding you every time you generate a sale of, of my product. What does the relationship look like for you? What sort of activities as a partner would, would you be doing to drive drive traffic and sales to my website? Just so people have kind of a, a real life example of how this might work. So really publishers, and we'll go with publishers or affiliates, go the entire spectrum. So from large you know, media properties, newspapers, magazines who are using their online sites to uh, public companies who run coupon and discount sites to bloggers that work out of their homes, people with apps, catalogs, 
really, really every conceivable sort of activity, it really usually revolves around them getting the eyeballs or awareness for customers around a particular vertical topic or some sort of angle, such as deals or coupons or something like that. Lo- lo- loyalty is a huge uh, publisher segment too. I know it's very big in the UK and here, but you know, loyalty and cashback and all that voucher model, that is all driven by affiliate commission. Cool. And um, we actually, we did a, one of the first interviews that we had on the podcast with a, with a guy who had a really interesting platform, which kind of provided voucher codes for people. It was like an exit pop-up. So a site would install an exit pop, which gave people a voucher code and, and then his company would provide the, the voucher codes. So like affiliate for loads of these companies. So yeah, it, really interesting market. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to, well, obviously some of them will already have affiliate programs in place. Some of them won't have put them in place yet, or, or it's something that they will have been thinking about, but maybe haven't haven't considered because I think that affiliate marketing can have a bit of a, a bad rep, I think. And, and you touched on that earlier. In, in the first part of your book, you talk about this, you know, the wild west phase of affiliate marketing. You know, maybe you could take us behind the scenes of what things used to look like. Sure. I, so I think, you know, it's a little bit of the wild west, gold rush. I think with any new industry, you have people looking to sort of exploit and take advantage of it. And I think when affiliate marketing took off, you had basically marketing entrepreneurs who were much smarter than their you know, company counterparts who were on the other side and saying, hey, I'll partner with you. And can I do this? And can I do that? And can I do paid search arbitrage? And you know, no, none of the people working in-house who came you know, over to the online divisions, probably from the catalog or otherwise, had any, any clue what these people were doing, but they just saw a lot of sales coming in. The first generation of affiliate marketing existed outside the attribution lens, which anything generated from the affiliate channel was seen as a win. It was affiliate revenue. Programs were growing really, really quickly. And and no one really questioned, you know, we have a, a saying here in the US, it's been a problem in the military, that kind of don't ask, don't tell. And, and that was sort of yeah. how affiliate marketing worked. It was like, hey, <laughs> hey, you got that sale? Don't ask, don't tell. And, 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 and that was very much because the brands that launched the first wave of e-commerce weren't brands. You know, they were pets.com and drugstore.com and they really just didn't have brand departments and again it was all about acquisition. I think as larger brands started to come online and they started to look at what their affiliates are doing, how they were generating those sales and how maybe those sales were non-incremental to a bunch of other activities that were going on, you know, then then they started to look at their affiliate programs a little differently and and, and attribution, you know, really was the big lens that I think opened up under the hood here. And people started to say, hey, we, we, we've been valuing these last in transactions and all these publishers have figured out how to be last in. And that's not inherently valuable to us or what we're looking for. There, there was a lot of lack of transparency. Again, don't, don't ask me what I'm doing. Just be thankful that I'm sending you transactions you know, there was just just some behavior under that model that that would not be acceptable today. And 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 for a lot of folks, uh, loyalty and coupon became sort of synonymous with affiliate. And so I think brands that were not interested in discount assumed like, oh, the affiliate model is not for me. And and really, affiliate program could be anything you want it to be. And I think that was a, a misassociation, assuming that that loyalty and cashback and coupon had had to be part of affiliate. It, it doesn't. So, so you talked about some less than wholesome activities that, that affiliates used to engage in to, to get the sale, which would have slipped through the net previously. What, what would some of those be? So a lot of them were acting as sort of paid search departments. Two of the ones that we would discover the most as we audited programs were they would buy 
PPC or pay-per-click trademark kind of pretending to be the brand. So something that would be a five cent click for the brand now got redirected through an affiliate link, drove up the cost of branded PPC, and then they had to pay a commission on. Again, really not what you were looking for your publishers to do. A lot of coupon and voucher sites also would kind of make up offers, save you know, up, <laughs> save up to 40% and click here to see this offer. And someone who was in the cart would click on that offer. They would go through, they'd realize there's no offer, but because the cookie was set, the affiliate would get the commission. So those are actually some of the grayer ones. The, the blacker ones, uh, and, and honestly, the US has been much worse at this. Europe and the UK have uh, just cracked down on this one more, but we, we have a lot of these toolbars here. So you download some free screensaver and it would come basically with some spyware, adware, that when you were going to a site anyway, it would set a cookie for that site and making look look like it it, it originated a, a sale. So uh, adware was a big problem in the US here and toolbars early on. Toolbars exist in different forms now, but in general, the UK has done a much better job of, of sort of working together and cracking down on that sort of stuff. The uh, the ingenuity of, of these yeah. affiliates is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, they, they are marketing entrepreneurs, right? And, and uh, I think that <laughs> you get the good and the bad of that. Entrepreneurs tend to push the envelope. It's one of the things of programs now. I think they're just, particularly since a lot of programs are more direct and aren't as may not be as network-based, this, this sort of three-strike rule doesn't apply anymore. It's, it's kind of a one-strike rule. Like, look, you, you come and you join our program and you behave or, or you're out. I think a lot, a lot of yeah. affiliates knew they could push the limits. And that what and the networks were in a tough position because what one person didn't want in their program, another one did, and so they they pushed just enough to not <laughs> get thrown out, but but you know to make money and then apologize where they stepped too far. So things have kind of moved on from that, luckily. And what a lot of people are talking about now when when they're talking about you know brand and and uh, authority or influencer partnerships is this whole thing about influencer marketing. So people on social media or people who write blogs or whatever. And brands are now having relationships with, with these guys, obviously. And this has been something that's been been pretty big for a few years. How do most brands approach this this whole thing about influencer marketing? Poorly, probably. Uh, I, I, no, I mean, <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, it's like, fr uh, say, frust frustrated. I've talked to more companies recently about influencer marketing, and I would say they are frustrated and excited. You know, this clearly uh, social influencers and people with reach are, are, are a great source of awareness and, and potential acquisition for, for these businesses. I think what happened in influencer it is it got this new name, like it was this totally new thing. Uh, really, influencer sort of existed in affiliate forever. And, and when that happens, much like we were just talking about affiliate 10 years ago, you tend to you know, have a little bit of a gold rush. And so um, you had lots of influencer networks pop up. They demanded large, you know, upfront fees for posting. Prices doubled and tripled. People started to get sloppy. You know, you have, I heard Selena Gomez is charging like $500,000 a post or something like that. So you, you start to have some real questions about authenticity. You see celebrities sort of hawking whatever they got paid uh, most for. And while brands find value in this, I think they're, they're looking for a little more authenticity and and most brands are finding more success sort of in micro influencers, which is what an affiliate program is great for is how do you aggregate a large group of people who have really targeted vertical reach? So if you've got some cool 
pet company. You know, there's lots of influencers around there in different pet verticals. They may have like 10,000 followers, but they're crazy about a certain type of dog breed. So the difference is, you know, we're seeing people looking to tap into the affiliate infrastructure. The, the, the brand budgets, e-commerce departments sort of emulated the brand team and started paying fixed placement fees for influencer stuff. And they started getting lazy posts. I mean, the, the, the tipping point was, I think someone in the Kardashian family last year posted the instructions they got from the influencer marketing firm into the Instagram post, which, which sort of <laughs> from the PR firm, which sort of was the, 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 that was the breaking point, I think, for paid influencer marketing. But the brands we all work with would say, that's great. Let's load these people in our affiliate program. Let's give them whatever they need. And we'd love to pay them on some sort of performance or acquisition metric. We really don't want to pay them tons of money just to post. And, and we think that actually, if they focus on the things that they believe in, They'll have a better conversion rate. It'll sound more authentic and will uh, align incentives a little more. So we see this coming back under the affiliate umbrella. Some of these influencer networks, they have a network problem. I mean, they recruited 10,000 people in six months and they can get about 100 of those people fixed placements and the other you know, 9,900 are kind of chomping their bits. Say, hey, when, when, when do I get in on the action? And the reality is they're going to have to prove their worth on a performance basis. So as influencer marketing came in, I guess everyone gets really excited. You know, it's super popular inside marketing departments. And they, the assumption is Kendall Jenner or whatever has so many followers. So we'll just pay her whatever. Surely we've got to get an ROI on that, right? When you're saying it's that kind of period of just crazy paying whatever they want is coming to an end. And now brands are expecting to be able to track the results and, and they want to kind of they're surprisingly asking for metrics i know it's really uh, it's really <laughs> it's really it's really amazing but you know the, again when everyone follows everyone into a gold rush like you said they just do it because everyone else is doing it they don't know that it works and i think the brand department started it and what happened was the acquisition and e-commerce department started jumping in and followed those same rules and that's not how they operate right i, I don't know an acquisition person in the world team that that pays sort of just, you know, placement without any metrics. And I, they got a little bit ahead of themselves. Yeah, it's kind of taking things back to the old advertorial days or like newspaper ads that aren't keyed or, you know, it's, it's like the pre-internet time before advertising was direct response and trackable. It seems crazy, but I guess there are influences out there, quite a lot of influences that might reject uh, a direct relationship like you're suggesting, because they want, you know, they want the creativity to do it. They just want to feature this product. They don't necessarily want to have like a trackable link or anything like that. So do you find that there's any reluctance with these influencers to work on on the sort of closer performance partnership basis? Look, it's all it's all supply and demand, right? And this has always been true for the affiliate space. Years ago, we tried to work with publishers and they'd say, hey, this, this, this site paid me 10000 you know, uh, this brand paid me $10,000 for this banner. How can you compete with that? I'd say, I, I, I can't. <laughs> you should take that $10,000 and, uh, you know, run to the bank with it. So I, I just, yeah, I, I think it's supply and demand. I think there'll be people at the top who, who, you know, it's just billboard marketing and folks will invest in them. I think when people go around for the second and third time and they don't have an ROI, They'll say, look, I need first I need you to track this and then uh, I'll still pay you. But I need you to track this. And maybe the third time, hey, we tracked this and not so good. So, um, again, you, you, this is this is uh, I, I get frustrated with this with conferences, you know, too. I, I think you need to make sure that people are paying you advertising dollars do well. And eventually that all, you know, equals out. Um, and if 
if the influencers doing well and the brands aren't, uh, you know, when it comes around for another cycle, uh, it will shift. So I think the pressure there is at least to put some tracking in or have some metrics, even if the payment hasn't changed for some of the large ones. But surely I can tell you at the mid and long tail, I think it's almost exclusively moving towards performance and, and, and trackable and people saying, look, i happy to pay you, but I, I got to understand what this is doing. I guess it's one of those, it's kind of like an ego marketing play, isn't it? A bit like, to a large extent, things like Super Bowl ads and just TV ads in general, where the marketing execs, they like seeing the ad up. It's easy to show that you've had loads of engagement because you just multiply the influencers numbers by, you know, how many followers they have. And you say to your to your boss, look, we got seen by, you know, a million people and oh, that's great. And then it's just moving on from that. Like, what's the actual ROI? So it's just it's the same conversation oh, yeah. that, or the same frustration that direct response marketers have always had with magazine ads that have no call to action or TV ads that are just like a picture of someone smiling and laughing. And then there's a tiny logo at the bottom right at the end, isn't it? It's just a, it's a question of marketing dollars in versus marketing dollars out versus this kind of ego play where we're just being seen by as many people as possible and assuming that that's being good for business. Yeah, look, it's great to be a brand marketer. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the wrong, wrong business where... You know, you can shell out millions. I mean, the opposite side, I think, actually, in the performance space and direct response is that I actually think there's a little too much measurement. I think there's, you know, hey, what sales did we get when you have awareness? So we're even though we're doing some influencer stuff on the performance base directly and through our sister company, Brand Cycle, you know, we're keen to understand some of those influencer metrics. So if, if influencers write 200 posts on a performance basis on behalf of a client, and they get X number of dollars of sales there still are more people that have seen those posts. There still is an impression or banner type effect. And actually, I think the performance space tends to swing too far where everyone's like, oh, that doesn't work. Or it's all about sales. Somehow we got to meet a little bit in the middle here and, and understand that there's a sales component and that there's an awareness component. If it was all about sales, no one would do display advertising, but it's a $40 billion, $50 billion business. So clearly there's something beyond just, just the transaction. Cool. All right. So let's talk about how a brand would start to identify influencers that they should be working with. What are the criteria that they should be looking for with these people? Presumably not just maximum audience size. Yeah, this is really simple in a way. And I think it it, it, it used to all be about size and audience and, and now it's just about relevance. So, you know, if I'm a, a fashion company targeting millennials, then I probably, you know, want to find some of these millennial influencers who have big followings in, in fashion, or maybe there are some mom sites that talk about what they're, you know, buying for their millennial daughters, or again, just just related. What we're seeing in affiliate programs now is actually the highest compensation and, and, and commission being paid to people who have the highest relevance versus the most volume. In fact, in a lot of cases, the volume is is opposed to, to, to quality, not in all of them, but the more general the site or the more just discounted, you know, it, it, it may not be as valuable on a, on a margin standpoint. So there are lots of tools out there. There are research tools. Obviously, I think an agency like ours, we, we, we buy a lot of this software and are able to leverage it across different clients. But it just seems like the companies that have done a good job have smartly either organically reached out or build lists or, you know, found people who they felt reflected their their brand in a positive way. Yeah, that's exactly what we found as well. When running, for example, we do a lot of social contests on on, on blogger sites and we find that even if they have quite a small audience or relatively small compared to some of the huge bloggers out there, 
as long as the topic of the blog is really heavily about say babies and, and stuff like that and we're we're selling some baby clothing we'll find we get so much better response from that than even a large blog where babies is just one of the topics that they're talking about right and it's it's it seems like we're going to that that place where we got these micro you call them micro influencers these kind of niche influencers and stacking loads and loads of them together to form one one big program rather than just picking you know the top influencer and just saying okay we're going to give everything to this person right and by the way exactly what you said so stacking tons and tons of people and getting them in a program managing them is is all of the infrastructure of what an affiliate program does well right so we we call it the affiliate framework because to do something like that you need tracking you need management you need a way to do that obviously doing that all on a spreadsheet would not work very well so that's where the affiliate infrastructure and performance partnership starts to come into play and people you know, we have a lot of biz dev teams too that are that are particularly with more direct affiliate programs where they're licensing the technology and running it under their own brand in-house, where they're saying, look, the biz dev team might have turned down deals below a certain size because they just didn't want to manage all of them. But if we can get someone to accept a contract, get tracking up and running and do all of that in a scalable way, it really changes how you can bring together hundreds and thousands of people and, you know, make that a meaningful group when they're all sort of wrapped together. So how do brands start doing this then? They know that they want to do it. Like what are the platforms that you guys are using? Are you suggesting that they work with an agency to do this? Are you saying they should do this in-house? Like what does it actually look like for a brand who wants to start? Yeah, so there are a couple of different paths. You know, obviously, I'd love to advocate for the agency avenue. However, <laughs> look, if you have a qualified team, it, it can be hard to find real experienced people in the affiliate space. So there's some great in-house teams. And if you have the capability to do that, that's great. I mean, we really struggle to hire people in this space and we do it all day long. So a client looking to find one or two people I, I, and who doesn't know where to look or how to find them, I, especially in the U.S. where everyone's spread out, it's hard. But you need to do one thing. You need to figure out whether you are interested in sort of a SaaS platform in which you license um, an affiliate network and sort of run that under your own brand um, and do more direct partnerships, or you want to work with a traditional affiliate network. And that might be, you know, like an Affilinet or uh, Awin, Rocketon, CJ, sort of in the UK, a little different um, set here in the US. And, and the full service network will give you a little more exposure. They'll help you run your program, the work with you. The fees are a little higher. It's probably not going to make sense to for you to take partnerships you source and bring them to the network unless you have a specific agreement on how to, you know, pay for those differently. It's kind of like, you know, paying a performance fee on the people that you recruited and, and then they're available to others. That is why we see some folks really even bifurcating and running a network-based program or running an in-house program and keeping some of their really large partners and some of the ones they've recruited on the in-house program so that th those are more direct partnerships. So you need to pick your technology platform first, decide whether it's SaaS or network or both, and then you got to figure out how to run it. And I I'd say if you have an in-house team or you have a capable person or persons, it's a lot of different skills from creative to fraud analysis to whatever, you got to make sure you have that covered. If not, you really want to leverage a specialist agency who, who knows how to do this and can be a little bit of a check and balance and he even help you pick the right network or technology partner. It sounds like the sort of thing where if people are if people are questioning how they get started, there are so many moving parts, there are so many things that they're not going to have thought about that it's going to be much simpler to work with an agency who can just take care of all of this. Yeah, and I think you're going to see the agency landscape change a little more in the UK. It's very different here. We have a big pool of independent agencies who sit outside the networks and platforms. 
And, and so th they're able to sort of sit down with you objectively, more like a consulting firm, figure out, okay, you don't know how to do this. Well, let's talk about where you start and what's a good agreement and all this stuff. I, I, I think if you run directly to the salespeople at all these various technology things, they will all tell you that they are the perfect solution for everything. And that that's not the case. So, you know, we're, we're sort of expanding our model into the UK and we think there is more need for that. Just launch consulting objective advice where exactly as you said, Tim, like, if your question is like, how do I even begin this? You probably don't have the experience in house to do that. You probably also don't have the experience to hire an affiliate manager because you wouldn't know if what they were telling you was true. It's always the hardest thing for a company to hire one of someone where they have no blueprint on how to hire that person or no way to even vet that that person knows what they're talking about. I mean, they might sound immensely smart. You'll hear people with stats all the time on their resume in the affiliate space about I grew the program 500%, 600%, 700% in three years. Of course, I would have a lot of questions about what sort of partners were in the program that grew 6 and 700%. But I see people fall for those sort of resumes all the time. They just, they just don't even know the questions to ask. So you know, sometimes you start with an agency and then your agency could help you hire that in-house person. It's not an either or. We have some large programs where we have several people on our team and there's several people in-house they're large global programs and they actually need people on on both sides of the fence. So let's assume that I've got an, an in-house affiliate team and, and they're managing the program for me and, and let's say I'm a, a brand or I have an e-commerce site or something like that. How do I, I've, I've identified some some niche influencers that, that I want to get into my program. How do I start reaching out to them? How do I even start that conversation with them and, and get them signed up and, and get them working with me on a performance basis? So this is really interesting. So we, our team has sort of pioneered a, a model here where we're, we're starting to look at recruiting publishers like customers. So we're, we figure out you know, a value of an acquired publisher. We, we look at the sources, we develop campaigns, we test different times of days and outreach and messages. There might be a message if we can tell that they've already done affiliate stuff, which which is a little simpler, and there may be a more complicated message. What we never say is the word affiliate. We talk about becoming a partner of a brand or all kinds of stuff. But I, I was just looking at some campaigns our team did, and they they very much like acquisition. They tested time of day, AB messaging, follow up. You know, figured out what produced the best conversion even targeted some paid search and other models. And they had like a CPA number they were trying to hit for an acquired publisher. We figured out what the lifetime value of a publisher was. So we're starting to really almost form like an acquisition marketing framework around recruiting people into a program. That's super interesting. So you know how much each of your influences or each of your publishers is going to be worth to you. And then it's just about even running paid ads, like search ads. That's yeah, you can run paid ads. You could retarget to your affiliate page. What if they came to the sign-up page and they didn't sign up? You know, you, you might want to retarget them for a very specific purpose. It's interesting because those are not those are not areas where there's a ton of paid budget, you know, going into that you're you're mm. competing. But again, it requires a different different sort of team. Um, we so we tested some really. We we have one client. We just did a a, a whole test where we recruited four thousand publishers in about a three month period across a variety of activities and sort of wrote up a case study on that. Um, and you used really our acquisition marketers to help do that. That's so interesting. So, what percentage of those are are people seeking out the brand because they like the product and they want a partnership versus just people who are just going about their daily lives, blogging or publishing and 
and then that's you know that's someone that you've reached out to so so the, this is where we now steal from brand marketing in terms of how we look at this it, it <laughs> it's like publisher personas right so fans of the brand people who seem to be in the right demographic people who seem to promote similar and competitive brands like there, there may be four or five publisher personas or publisher segments that that sort of you know line up customers may also be a, a, a great source you know i think one of the things we see is, a, is an overuse of referral programs. Referral programs are really meant for one-to-one. Like I, I refer you to a gym and you get a month free and I get a month free. There are a lot of folks who are, are advocates of a brand who have sort of been overusing a referral program and getting like lots of free stuff when they'd be happier making money. Yeah, oh, it's, it's really interesting, really interesting approach, kind of doing the marketing to pick up the marketers to sell the product. It's, uh... Yeah, we, we, we really try to do things differently. I, the problem with most programs is they're on autopilot. And to grow an affiliate program, you need to have the team spending 50% of the time on outreach. It, it, it's equivalent to if I said I had a biz dev team and what they did was they sat by the phone all day, you know, and they answered the phone and, and dealt with whoever yeah. called. That, that is how most people run their programs. And it's just our model has always been to staff them in a way that allows for that publisher recruitment, because that, that at the end of the day, that's the only thing that's going to grow a program. I guess particularly with influencers where they're flooded with so many inbound offers anyway, it's not like they're going out there necessarily to seek out brands to work with. They're just kind of they're reacting to whatever's coming in there. Yeah, and, and a lot of the, you know, everyone, look, you you get these in that. I mean, how many sales guys do you hear? Some half-assed, terrible email, and then they send you the same one again. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's better to do far fewer of these things and do them in a high-quality basis than it is to just kind of do something that's low-value at scale. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Cool. Okay. So that's how we can kind of grow and, and, and manage our campaigns. How should people think about how much they should reward an influencer? Say I work with a blogger and they get me X sales and you know, each my the average order value is Y. So I have this X, Y amount that I've made from this. How much would that blogger expect to get as a, as a reward for, for generating those sales? Like what sort of ballpark percentages would you normally work with? You know, most people are willing to pay influencers or content sites at, at the max. And look, the rate you normally see out there is sort of the rack rate. So you shouldn't be afraid to ask for more. So I, I would say it depends. More niche like clothing or fashion could be 10 to 15% of sale. As you get down to commodity electronics and groceries where like the businesses are like 5% margin businesses overall, you might expect a percent or two or three. So it really aligns to the, you know, the the, the margins of the the underlying business. But I think that's the range. I think, you know, kind of most programs, I would say 90% of programs that, that aren't in some sort of recurring revenue or really high thing, like B2B type thing are in the one to 15% range. Okay, cool. And would you would you advocate paying more influential people more or would they expect to make more anyway just because they have more influence? You know, not to take it to another level, but I, I this is <laughs> the, the the smart performance and affiliate marketers would look at the actual types of products and order quality and margin. And, you know, they wouldn't make an absolute judgment on a publisher. They would say, wow, this publisher is really driving new to file customers, high margin, non-discount orders. And they'd say, look, this is what it's worth to us. In theory, you should offer your best rate up front because you're not paying it until you have the sale. 
I, I, I find time and time again, and I, I can't understand this, and I, I know you guys do a lot of paid search. Maybe you can explain it to me where they'll say they want to pay their affiliates 8%, and then, and then we kind of dig in, and we find out their paid search cost of acquisition is 12%. And yeah, <laughs> like, I don't know. Why, why would you be willing to pay 12% after the, you know, before the fact uh, to get someone through paid search when you're only offering 8% to a, a publisher and you don't even have to pay that until after you get the sale? Really, there should be no difference across the channel, right? If you determine that a customer is worth X, the the one thing you can do with a, with a publisher that's a little different is you can get into the sources of their traffic, and then you can say with them, "Hey, when you did this promo or this sort of thing, we got better results, and so how do we give you more content to do that?" Right? You can iterate, and instead of just messing with a rate or the blended rate, uh, this you know what our team does, and some of the smartest affiliate marketers try to go and pay more for the most valuable types of customers that they can get from that partner. Like, yeah, because I guess you could you could make an argument that actually a sale from a partner, or a sale from a publisher who has influence with the customer is, is potentially worth more than a sale from something like PPC because that PPC sale is quite a cold transactional thing, isn't it? Whereas the sale from the influencer comes with all sorts of perception and credibility. And, and that person probably has a, a better relationship with the brand that they're buying because of the uh, the association with that person who holds influence. So yeah, I, th- I think you could certainly make an argument that you might even want to pay a higher percentage of the overall cost for, for the influencer-driven sale. Actually, that's a great example. Like that's a brilliant thesis, right? And, and, and the Data may prove that true or may prove that totally false. <laughs> so I think a lot of right? <laughs> so I think it's incumbent upon us to look at the data and say, yeah, you know, I had this thesis that actually the influencers are definitely sending us more top of funnel, higher percentage of new. They seem to be driving the discovery, and, and, and that's great. Or I may look at one another influencer in the same program, like, look, they're they're showing up at the end of funnel. They're showing up after we already had paid channels. So, so I, I wouldn't want to make a general analysis. I'd actually want to look at the data and say, you know, Tim Tim's going to get paid ten percent because I've I've looked at how his his traffic behaves, and uh, Steve's going to get paid four percent because his traffic is just not perform. His new customer rate is is half of that. So that that's sort of the difference, I think. That's interesting. And then you could even pay Tim and Steve differently according to which posts are driving the traffic, because they might have a different by behavior according to the context of the link then it gets really crazy yeah this is right no but this is this is where the skill set and the time to do real affiliate performance marketing has not you know it's not there because that's exactly right i go to tim i say look tim when you ran this homepage promo and featured our new product line we killed it i want to do that again i'm going to give you a custom offer i want you to track that separately i'll even pay you you know, instead of like fixed placements, you know, one thing our team is like, I'll, we'll pay you double for the placement on the homepage, but we need you to track that separately. I, I, we really want to understand how that performs versus the page that you have up all the rest of the year. So this is where I think affiliate marketing has been painted as simplistic and, hey, we can just throw some junior people on it. To do, to do performance partnerships and to do this sort of stuff at the next level, you need smarter, more experienced people who know how to look at data and who really can combine this human element and this data element to make, make good decisions. And that's a great segue into what I wanted to ask you about now, which is where do you see all of this stuff going, the affiliate marketing, the performance partnerships, like five, 10 years time, what's different to what we're looking at now? So five to 10 years time, I think that I would say 30 to 40% of online marketing will be performance-based. I think people will be paying, particularly all the display fraud and everything that's going on now, which has really been, been a mess. 
where they're paying for inputs. People are going to pay for outcomes and they're going to tie their payments to outcomes. And it's going to be really hard to have some service or product you sell that doesn't produce outcomes and get paid a lot of money for that. So I, I see more of these, I, I sort of say the network coming in-house, more of the people wanting to control the bidding and the partnerships within their own walls, have it be transparent, this sort of promise of programmatic and, you know, give us your money and let the computers decide and all be great uh, has has <laughs> not worked out uh, as intended. And I heard someone actually say last week that they, that performance is the new programmatic. And, you know, I like that because performance is an outcome and programmatic is like an input. And like I said, you should never get so excited about a, a new model or an input. You should get excited about the outcome. So I, I think we're going to see more of these business development, digital partnerships, affiliate. I, I just think it will all become one thing and it won't be nuanced. It will be like, yes, we work with this partner on a performance basis. And we we really got to, recently got together some really large programs in the US. And I think one of the things that resonated with them was kind of going back home and talking about it more as the partner program. And, you know, internally that sort of changing the perception of what the program does and who it works with. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I love what you're saying about the programmatic, this whole thing about recently about the brand ads being shown next to awful videos and racist videos and, you know, ISIS and all of that. And or not or just, not being it, seen at all, right? Yeah, Robo robots that the, 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 the yeah. mom set up. And it's just it's crazy that it takes something like that for brands to go, oh wait, hold on. Our ads aren't doing anything for us, or our ads are showing in the wrong place, or our ads aren't showing at all. It like when Facebook releases stats which say, oh, they're actually, you know, what we've been reporting on is different to what, you know, what's actually been happening. And everyone's like, oh, people haven't been tracking. They're not looking. They're not looking at the stats, are they? They're just they're getting a report from their agency about impressions. And they're measuring their success on that. And it's meaningless. It's kind of worse than that, though, <laughs> because, I, I, <laughs> again, I, you guys have better standards than we do. But it, but but there's kickbacks. So you'll have something where a firm places a million dollars of of programmatic you know, media ads. They are paid a 25 percent commission from the brand for doing that. So that's that's two hundred and fifty thousand call it pounds or dollars. And then the platform gives them a kickback of $200,000 for every million that they buy, that they bought with their customer money. So now, now they're up to 450. And then it turns out that half of those ads, you know, were not seen at all, seen by bots, showed up in the wrong place. I mean, this is really just a gross misalignment of incentives and, and transparency. I, the kickback thing just really frustrates me. I mean, you should you should not be paid a kickback with someone else's money that, that that you're then not giving to them and not disclosing that also just encourages you to place the you know the 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 ads or, or or the media buy with with the folks that give you money back rather than perform so this is this is basically hit a watershed over here cmos are are, are furious they're they're coming out with new codes of standards and, and 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 stuff that they're expecting agencies to live by and I'm all for all this stuff because I think it drives more people to say, yeah, this should should be performance-based and this stuff should be transparent. And I, I just think that's where we're going. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. There should be no... Re I mean, the CMOs also have to accept responsibility because they're just <laughs> pumping their money into a black hole that they don't understand. Yeah, uh, right? yes. Or their media buyers. I mean, there needs to be accountability, right? And in some cases, yeah. they found out that the reason why the agency was doing this because one of the things they they were doing, they weren't making any money off of. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a comment you sh you should you need to price fairly and explain how you're pricing. And but yeah, this this stuff has has got to go. And I think the IAB is 
is starting to take a lead on it in the U.S. and it's going to just push more stuff to performance. I mean, at the end of the day, performance is the only way to eliminate all of these problems, right? I mean, exactly. it, <laughs> we don't have to have any of these yeah. problems if you have some sort of objective performance metric that you pay on rather than any of these input metrics. Completely, completely agree. This has been absolutely fantastic, Robert. Thank you so much. It's been uh, absolutely fascinating to get an insight into into affiliates and, and performance-based marketing from, from you. So thank you so much. Where do people find out more about you and your various companies? <laughs> sure. So um, you can find me uh, at accelerationpartners.com or probably Googling that. The book website is performance-partnerships.com. And if you go to that page, we actually have first chapter up now that you can download for free. And we have a little five minute test called Affiliate Grader that will let you input some data and it'll give you a score on your affiliate program to know uh, how you're doing. And uh, you can reach out to me in any of those channels. And if it's not a sales pitch, I'd be happy to reply and answer your questions. I also send out a, a Friday email, sort of inspirational email at FridayFWD.com. Friday at FWD.com. Uh, Friday, uh, it's Friday Forward, it's called. Uh, if you Google it, you'll find it, but it's FridayFWD.com. Got it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Tim.